Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Tomato Timer. And today I have someone joining me who has a lot to, to kick off with because she is a youth mental health activist. She's a climate scientist. She's a conceptual fine art photographer, food and beverage entrepreneur, speaker, poet, writer, former astrophysicist, karaoke, karaoke food champion. I need to ask you about that. Obsessed with all things matcha and penguins. Diana is my friend and it's really, really good to have you. How are you? Hi, it's very nice to see you. Uh, and yes, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, let's get started. Absolutely. So Diana, the, the reason we, we met and, and the, the work that you do for youth mental health is inspiring, incredible, and it's, it's through your organization and not-for-profit Letters to Strangers. So tell me a little bit about how it all started and what does Letters to Strangers do? Yeah, so Letters to Strangers is the largest global youth for youth mental health nonprofit. So we seek to destigmatize mental illness and increase access to affordable and quality treatment through basically anonymous letter writing exchanges on campuses and in communities, uh, our science-based peer education, as well as our grassroots policy-based advocacy. And so we have uh, over 100 chapters in over 20 countries on six continents with over 35,000 people in our network impacted every year. Uh, but I think the story behind it is probably the thing that is always there to hold me through when I uh, have those, you know, I, I know you can relate to it, but those days when I'm just like, I don't know if this is worthwhile to to keep trying on. Mm -hmm. um, and so just a quick, I guess, trigger warning, um, I do mention mental illness and suicide and abuse, um, but I grew up with a lot of abuse in every sense of the word. And when I was about 13, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, after which I survived a series of suicide attempts. And it was after my little brother found me after my final attempt um, that I made a vow to myself that I needed to try to do something on my end to heal. And so as a first-generation Chinese-American immigrant who was growing up beneath the poverty line, you know, my parents didn't speak English, the healthcare system just felt impossible in many ways to navigate. And so that's why I started turning to writing. And I was writing these letters to strangers and I realized that I was being kind and empathetic to these people I never even met, but I couldn't do the same for myself for some reason. And so that's how I started to recognize my voice, my worth. Um, I had this model that I ended up creating, which is writing is humanity distilled into ink. And after that started to help, help me heal, I turned it into a student club in my high school. And eventually it grew to this <laughs> crazy mass that it is today. I remember hearing a, a message that you shared with us a couple of weeks ago. Hurt people hurt. And then there's an opposite that you shared. And I'd love to hear it again from you. Yeah, so there is this uh, common phrase called hurt people hurt people, which is very true. But I feel like there should be a follow up to that because I don't want there to just be an endless cycle of pain. So my personal follow up to that is healed people heal people. And I love that it's it, it takes a few seconds to digest. It's very poetic. And I, and I really, I, as you can see, even after, you know, weeks away, I that 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 phrase really stuck with me. Letter writing is is in many ways a lost art. It was something that was done so often and it was 
so it's such a dedicated thing that you know we have people had in their lives I, I know my mom and dad still have their their letters <laughs> hidden away somewhere they don't let us see it um but it's it's starting to disappear and we are you know continuously communicating we're sharing and writing all the time and yet we're not writing in this kind of long form even emails tend to be like very rapid kind of rapid fire messages um what is what what's the beauty behind it and why 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 do you still love it why do you want to do it why do you think that's the solution to to kind of share and message each other yeah it's a really good question and i know that you are a personal fan of letter writing so i'm glad we can connect over that you know we get letters all the time now where the person was saying their letter like oh i've actually never written a letter before or something like that and i'm like oh i feel so old <laughs> but i think that's the thing though is that you know we are at a generation where um, I know for me, at least, I type way faster than I can physically handwrite. Mm. But the thing about physically handwriting a letter is that that slower process and that process of actually drawing out every letter, uh, every letter of the letter, <laughs> um, you know, it forces you to think about what you're saying. And that sort of internalization, reflection is a process that you don't really get anymore these days. And I think what's so special to me, at least, about writing a letter is that a lot of times when you talk about, you know, mental wellness, the idea of journaling comes up. And I know it's very helpful for many people. But for me personally, when I was in my darkest moments, I was my own worst enemy, which meant that if I was writing in a journal, I often would descend into these really bad spirals. And so if I was writing writing a letter where I knew that there was someone on the other end, that sort of potential audience forced me to take a step back and think more carefully about what I'm putting down. And so in a way, it was like a, a ladder connecting me to the outside world when I was falling deeper and deeper into my own mind. And that allowed me to express my thoughts and vent and also think about you know things, but also not lose myself too deep in the chaos of it all within myself. So I think that is what's so special to me about you know these letters to strangers is that you can imagine a stranger to be anyone who you need them to be in that moment, someone who will care and listen and not judge you, um, but also be that sort of uh, listening, you know, that, that sort of mi uh, mirror, I guess you could say, to, to echo back at you what you're saying mm -hmm. so that you are more aware of actually what you are saying because there is someone who's listening to it. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about the kind of the slowing down and introspection and reflection. And it's almost like as you write, you're also in your brain, you're also almost reading it back to yourself. And yeah. that kind of that act of like writing, but also immediately like kind of kind of consuming that content is very powerful. In fact, I know for I know there are many researches that have been done even now that writing has proven that there's so many much so much more kind of cognitive linking that form and especially for academics it's so much more beneficial to write. I mean, I still, you know, in front of me, my set of questions are on a, oops, <laughs> that's always, that's something I always do. I have my iPads and everything lying around, but this is the thing that I always come back to because there's something, there's a kind of, there's a linking process that happens when you put pen to paper. Um, so it is incredibly powerful. And I would, I always like kind of advocate for and always suggest that take some time out and, and have those kind of special spaces for you to write. I also like carve out like special moments because I think that writing needs that kind of like dedication. I know in the past, you know, you would have a writing table and you'd have a favorite writing pen and you'd have these kind of things. And I, 
I, I think that ceremony is, is worthwhile. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a luxury, you could say, in today's world. Um, but I think even if we can't have all of that space, having one nice pen, I have this one ink pen that I use um, for my letters. And I think, you know, just that in and out of itself becomes a ritual that can have like a calming effect with it. Mm. I wanted to keep going in the in the work that Letters to Strangers does beyond this kind of matchmaking process and, and letter writing, which is around specifically the organization producing the first Youth for Youth Mental Health Guide. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, so back in December of 2019, we published the world's first Youth for Youth Mental Health Guidebook. It's like this really big, like 80,000 word book that dives into the A to Z of mental health, by which I mean, you know, not just the basics of mental health, like what mental illnesses are, what are the uh, protective factors, risk factors, etc., how to access the healthcare system, um, but also really diving deep into the intersectionalities of mental well-being. Mm -hmm. So how race, ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic status, LGBTQ plus identity, youth, like all these different things can impact your mental health. Um, for us, you know, it was really important to highlight those aspects because I know for me growing up in this sort of um, culturally enmeshed family setting, a lot of my difficulties in communicating my mental illness were due to factors that are not seeing in a typical white American family. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what we really wanted to ensure was addressed, like these deep dives and not just like one page overviews written by someone who doesn't understand the culture or community. So we have, the, the whole thing is written by 14 to 21 year olds entirely and reviewed by medical and industry professionals. And we have about 1000 scientific citations. So tell me, tell me more about how you were ensured to capture those intersectionalities, because I think that is something I'm slowly starting to realize one of the biggest challenges and the factors which continues to exacerbate inequalities, right? Um, it isn't when we talk about making education accessible for all or making ensuring mental well-being or mental health is an agenda or an item that every young person has access to. These get harder and harder as you look at these Kind of almost like compounding effects of different uh, racial, gender, uh, sexual preferences, all these kind of like, these just continue to make it harder and harder. Um, tell me a little bit more how you ensured that you had that representation and what does it mean for the wider social impact space to ensure that we, when we talk about any of the biggest social problems that we're facing, why intersectionality should be like key to our discussions. Yeah, so I will say, I'll be the first to say that, you know, we didn't cover every single possible intersectionality out there. I could say that's impossible, and it is to an extent, but it's not a cop-out. It's something that we still want to work on and release more content in the future. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, I was thinking about what are some of, like, the big factors that occur in many people's lives that um, are considered minority in some extent or just in other ways outside of the norm and may still mm -hmm. impact them. And this also comes into play when you look at statistics that break down, you know, for example, mental health conditions by demographics and looking at the disparities among those can help you also pinpoint what needs to be addressed. But I think the biggest thing was that a few years ago, I um, did 
I don't even know, like 600 interviews um, by myself with people from all over the place, but mostly across different neighborhoods in San Francisco and just the Bay Area. Um, and I was interviewing people about mental health and just seeing what they were saying about their own experiences and their, you know, loved ones' experiences. And I think based on those conversations, you know, you can really extract some major themes and pin, uh, pinpoints that people have. So those were the guiding lights for me as I was figuring out how to outline and structure this guidebook. And I think also, you know, to ensure the diversity, right? Like we don't want to just have someone like me who is Asian American write about the experience of someone who is Muslim, African, you know. And so it was important that we have people from those community and who are also leaders of that community. So they have a broader understanding of the community than just their own experience. Those people are either writers or detailed reviewers of all the um, sections on intersectionality. So that was a really big um, you know, point for us. And one of the reasons why it took us a while to finish the book. Um, and I think, you know, one big thing that is really important for us to keep in mind when we you know, pursue intersectionality is that this is really something that we can't just push to the wayside since intergenerational trauma is very real. And there's been all these studies that show that if you have, for example, um, two mice that you mate with each other and one of the mouse is, um, say, exposed to anxiety inducing symptoms, just stress in general, and the other mouse is considered under normal circumstances, if you mate them, up until five generations later, even if you mate each following generation with a quote unquote perfectly normal mouse, the behavior, the instinctual um, you know, reactions, the biology of the offspring can still maintain and retain the sort of stress induced conditions that the first mother mouse had. And so that's up to five generations later. And wow. of course, it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean it's up to five generations in humans. But you can imagine that it just means yeah. that everything that has happened to us or the people before us is still going to impact us and our futures too. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we address it now or else it's just going to keep going. Yeah, that's such an incredibly interesting study, I have to say, that's and such an interesting result too. I want to continue this conversation, but take it into a little bit of a broader direction. Mental health is for the first time and mental well-being is for the first time um, being more openly talked about, um, whether it's in the media or it's with celebrities or it's with within kind of governmental bodies. Um, and it's starting to get destigmatized. But now there's this other kind of very big challenge that's coming out of sensationalization, where mental health and challenges associated to this are now kind of accepted or like labeling people are tending to label themselves with certain conditions and it's 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 like it's a fad it's a trend it's cool um and it's really unfortunate and really hard especially for those who face you know medically con medical conditions so what are your feelings towards this this direction of you know finally being able to talk about it in public but also at the same time this kind of like global trend which is kind of maybe to some extent reducing the impact of, of the work that you're trying to do? Yeah, and I know that, you know, we've had conversations about this. Um, it's definitely a tough situation. I remember the first time I really started hearing about it was when some of the younger folks I work with, you know, came up to me and was like, Diana, you know, I feel like at my high school, 
it's not even cool to have depression or bipolar or uh, anxiety anymore. Everyone has those now. The new cool thing is bipolar disorder. And I remember just feeling so shocked because, you know, that's a disease that almost killed me. And it seems so strange to hear it in that facet now. And the other day, I was also kind of ranting on my Instagram because I was, uh, our, our social media always gets all these comments from people who are like, oh, we are a mental health close agency. Uh, and, uh, you know, tag us here to promote your content or be a brand ambassador. And I'm just like, when did it become so commercialized and just, you know, capitalizable mm -hmm. for mental health to be talked about like this? And so I, I don't want it to get to the point where, you know, we regress and like don't talk about mental health anymore. But I think the issue is that as we talk more about mental health, we aren't following up with education about it. And so what ends up happening is that the increased dialogue about it becomes ricochets around the same old stereotypes and concepts that are brought about by the media, which means that it's good to have more talks about it, but the talks about it are often based on inaccurate or incomplete information. And so I wish that, you know, we can have these conversations still, but have some sort of standard in the way that we talk about it. So whether that's ensuring more mental health curriculum in schools, the way that Letters of Strangers is trying to do with our new teacher's curriculum guide, um, or just having people be more aware of what they're saying and having that self-reflection process where before you post XYZ about mental health, doing a little bit of research to make sure that that is actually something that's accurate. Um, mm -hmm. You know, having symptoms does not equal to having the illness. And that's perfectly fine. That doesn't mean your symptoms are not worthy of being discussed or you are not being worthy of being cared about. Having those sad feelings is perfectly valid for you to seek preventative help from a therapist or to talk to a community and friends. I wish we didn't have to push it to the point where you have to have some sort of diagnosis or some sort of condition's name mm -hmm. associated with you before you feel like it's okay to seek that help. Because that's when it gets sort of more problematic for everybody involved. Um, so I hope that answers your question. It does. It's, it's really helpful and insightful. And I hope that it's a message that's that's heard far and wide. I think it applies to in many different contexts, mental health, but also things like climate change, which is once again a, a topic which is super trending and people all want to get behind it. And suddenly we're leveraging this as a marketing, a branding technique to to get more traction towards us, to get more you know eyeballs checking out what we're doing. And uh, I, I, it comes back to the, the message you said, which is education. We need to know what these things are and the better, the, the better we can kind of understand them, the better we can kind of um, ensure that with the words being used, the kind of conditions being mentioned are actually accurate. So yeah. when it, oh, sorry. Go, ahead, go ahead, please. Oh, I just want to add one quick thing, which is that I think one of the difficulties about education in the mental health space is that because there is all these age old ideas associated with various mental illnesses, mm -hmm. people often have an like an idea in their heads that they know what XYZ is when they don't necessarily do. What I mean is when I do my workshops, I often do this exercise where I read out a list of mental health conditions that are the most common. And I ask people to raise their hands uh, if they believe that they have an idea of what that mental illness consists of. In the first round, almost everybody raises their hands. The second round, I ask them to raise their hand only if they, their, if their knowledge of it comes from like a reputable source 
just like a textbook or they learned it in class or they uh, experienced it personally um, or like a very close loved one experienced it and they were there for that experience. Uh, and then when I do the second round, the number of hands dropped by over half almost every single time. And I think the thing is just that, you know, people have all these exposures to mental health conditions in daily, li daily dialogue or through stereotypes passed down from generation to generation or the media. And we absorb it without processing the fact that we're absorbing it. And so then we end up having this idea that we know what depression is. We know what anxiety is um, without actually having done any research into it. Um, so when I say education, I, it's also a call to action for all of us, because even if we think we know something, it's all, uh, it doesn't hurt to look more into it um, to, dis, uh, to dispel some of that internal bias we may very well have. Absolutely. And it's something I will, I will definitely take away with myself as well. Diana, you've taken some incredibly challenging uh, parts of your life uh, experiences and you've transformed it into some, you know, a source of inspiration and power and, and energy and, and, you know, all that great stuff for yourself as well. Um, you know, we, we all come from different backgrounds and it isn't about justifying or trying to show who's been through more pain and it's, it's, it's all, it all varies and we're not trying to like, that's, that's the, that's part of the point as well of what you're trying to say. It's not about being relatively more, more, like, you know, more challenged or anything like that. But I, I, I am curious and I think many of our listeners would be too, that you've taken these often uh, limiting conditions or, or feelings or emotions or, or, or experiences and you've turned that into your superpower. Um, what is it that kind of inspires you? What, what powers you and what would you say is, for for those out there who are feeling like they they don't belong or they feel like they they are not getting the support that they require what what can they learn from you i think the first thing i would say is um you know what i experienced and what i what i am able to accomplish while they are related they are not a direct cause and effect and the reason I emphasize that is because I don't want people to think that, you know, you need to have X, Y, Z experience before you're able to do something. But also more importantly, from a personal perspective, it's a little painful when I get people who make assumptions about how I should be, you know, in a way grateful for my bipolar disorder because that's what enabled me to quote unquote achieve all this success. And I tell them when they say that to me, that you know, my success or whatever else shouldn't come at the expense of my well-being, my happiness, my ability to live life without hating every fiber of my being. Um, and so I, I, I just wanted to emphasize that because I think especially in today's culture and online with all the social media posturing and everything, it's very easy to get caught up in this feeling of, I have to do X, Y, Z. Um, by age, whatever, and if I don't, then I'm a failure. But the truth is that the fact that you know we can do our part in living healthy lives, in making sure that we are as well as we can be, so that we can be healed people who heal other people. I think that is a, a big challenge that you know people can spend their whole lives trying to work on. And so, I I would say that 
prioritizing aspects of life like that will naturally lead to successes in other areas because the better off of a mental and physical health space that you are in, the more you will be able to contribute meaningfully and you know, with longevity to um, any causes you care about. So I just wanted to emphasize that instead of the pursuit of any um, perhaps more shiny successes that I can mention. Thank you so much, Dan. I, I really appreciate your time, your message, and, and the fact that you shared such an intimate and such a personal story with, with our audience. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's my honor and pleasure. Hope you've had a good day and we'll speak soon. See you. See you.